Our message series is called Biblical Foundations. We are looking at seven areas of teaching, uh, those seven areas that comprise our church statement of faith. Uh, These are the seven really major areas of teaching uh, in the Bible that define the essential core beliefs of Christianity and the church. You know, there's a whole lot of teaching in the Bible, right? A whole lot of pages uh, in the book. Uh, but if you can master these seven areas that we're looking at, you will have a strong foundation uh, for your faith and life as a Christian. We've, we've done two so far. We've looked at what the Bible teaches about itself. Uh, last time we looked about what the Bible teaches about God. Today we come to, boy, I mean, you can't get much better than this, what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So we're going to talk about Jesus today. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Dear God, as we look at uh, these verses and and others this morning, uh, as we look at our Lord Jesus, uh, God, draw us close to yourself through your word. And Lord, as we uh, just meditate and reflect on who you are, Lord Jesus, and what you've done for us, may we be drawn closer to you in love and admiration and in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. There's probably no more central area of teaching in the Bible than the Bible's teaching about Jesus Christ. Uh, When you think about it, the whole Bible is essentially about Jesus, right? The, The Old Testament, the whole Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ into the world. The New Testament proclaims that Jesus has come and tells us what that means. And so Jesus Christ is absolutely central. He is central to the Bible. He is central to Christianity. He is central to all of history. And when it comes right down to it, it really is all about Jesus. And so today we're going to look at what the Bible tells us about Jesus. We're going to look first at the person of Christ, who Jesus is. And then we will look at the work of Christ, what Jesus did, what he's doing now, what he will yet do in the future. Uh, There is an outline in your worship guide. I encourage you to take that out. It will help you to follow along with the message. But let's get started. We begin with the person of Christ, who Jesus is. And and let me read to you the first part of our statement of faith on Jesus, as you'll find it on your outline this morning. We believe in the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ and in his virgin birth. One of the most important questions you can ever answer in life is this. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this man that has had such a profound influence on the rest of mankind? And the enormity of Jesus' influence in history is undeniable. Just take a look at a calendar, any calendar, the one you've got on your phone. We divide the entire history of mankind into the years before 
and after Jesus' birth. There's a poem I like. It's called One Solitary Life, and it captures the incredible, of, incredible influence of Jesus so well. Let me just share with you some of this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He died when he was only 33. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. So who is this man who has so greatly impacted natures and cultures and history for the past 2,000 years? Most people would agree that Jesus was a, a good man, a powerful teacher, perhaps even a prophet sent from God. And you know they would all be right. Those things are all true, but it's only partly right because Jesus is all of that and more. The Bible teaches, Jesus claimed, and his disciples affirmed that Jesus Christ is none other than the Son of God who became a man. Jesus is far more than just a teacher or prophet. He is both fully God and fully man. First of all, he is fully God, and we don't need to talk about that a lot this morning because we we already discussed that last time, right, when we talked about God and what the Bible says about God and the Trinity. We saw that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, that's Jesus, Holy Spirit, that all three of those persons are equally God. And we looked at a number of passages which clearly teach that Jesus is God and that Jesus is equally God with the Father. I'll just share one of them with you. We, we looked at John 1. says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus Christ is fully God, and He has been from all of eternity. But the Bible also teaches that Jesus is fully man. And you go ahead in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, to verse 14, puts it this way. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus has always been God, but He was not always a human being. Notice that John says He became flesh. He became a man at a specific point in time, at a specific time in history. And we celebrate this. We celebrate the Word becoming flesh each year when? At Christmas, right? That's what it's all about. 
And the big fancy theological word for this uh, is the incarnation. And the incarnation simply means that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became a man. The word who in the beginning was with God and was God became flesh. You might wonder, how does that happen? How did God do this? How could God become a man? And of course, it's a mystery. It's a miracle. It's beyond our understanding. But the scripture does give us some clues, doesn't it? As to how God did this, as to the process. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And so Mary was still a virgin when she conceived and gave birth to Jesus. She was pledged to be married to Joseph, but they were not yet married and they had not yet come together as husband and wife. So you might wonder, well, how does a virgin conceive and give birth to a baby? Right? How in the world does that happen? Well, you know, Mary asked the same question. They knew about these things in those days. She asked the same question when God first told her that she would give birth to a son. And we read in the Gospel of Luke, How will this be? Mary asked, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary had no physical union with anyone to produce her child. The conception of Jesus Christ was a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary's womb. But, okay, apart from that miracle, okay, apart from that miracle surrounding his conception, from that point on physically, Jesus grew and developed in the womb the same as any other human baby grows and develops in the mother's womb. When the nine months were almost at an end, Mary, just like any other human mother, at nine months pregnant, the Bible tells us she was great with child. And when Mary gave birth to Jesus, it was just like any other human birth. Well, aside from the fact of all those angels singing and that this was fulfillment of prophecies over the centuries. But the point is this. Jesus did not just suddenly appear one day as a fully grown human being. Now, God could have done it that way, right? That's what he did with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created as fully human adults. God could have done that with Jesus. But if God had done it that way, people would have had reason to doubt whether Jesus was truly human. And so God made sure that Jesus, from the very moment following conception, Jesus followed the same path as all humans do. He developed in the womb. He was born as a baby. He grew to be a man. Jesus was fully and truly human. He was just as human as you and I are, and yet he was also fully God. He wasn't part God and part man, right? He was fully both. Jesus became fully man without ceasing at the same time 
to be fully God. And this is the miracle of the incarnation. This is who Jesus is. And knowing this is so important because unless you understand who Jesus is, you will never understand what Jesus did. And that's because what Jesus did could only be done by someone who was both fully God and fully man. Or to put it another way, the work of Christ is inseparably tied to the person of Christ. So we've looked at the person of Christ. Now we want to turn our attention to the work of Christ, where we consider what Jesus did. And here our statement of faith highlights six things that Jesus did or will do. The last one hasn't happened yet. Let's take a look at them now. First of all, he lived a perfect, sinless life in complete obedience to God the Father. Perfect, sinless life. Jesus said in John 8 concerning his father, I always do what pleases him. Can you say that? Can you say you always do what pleases God? I can't say that. Jesus did. On the last night of Jesus' life, the night before he was crucified, Jesus said, the world must learn that I love the father and that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. And I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Book of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah concerning Christ. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then John goes on and says he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. You know, Jesus asked the Jews of his day, he said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Once again, how comfortable would you feel asking that question in a public setting? Can any of you prove to me, prove that I've sinned? Well, boy, I mean, we've got the evidence everywhere, right? But you know, no one was able to bring a single valid charge against Jesus. In fact, at Jesus' trial, the prosecution had to bring in false witnesses. And false testimony in order to bring a case against him. On the very last day of Jesus' life, the day he was crucified, all of the following people testified to Jesus' innocence. Listen to this list. Ready? Because these are people you would not expect to testify to Jesus' innocence. First up, Judas. Judas, who betrayed Christ, testified that Jesus had done nothing wrong. Pilate who had Jesus flogged and crucified, said he has done nothing wrong. Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus. She said, this man is innocent. The thief on the cross, the repentant one, said, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion who guarded Jesus at the cross said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely this was the Son of God. This was the last day, the last hours of Jesus' life. The testimony comes in. All of these testified to Jesus' innocence. Why is this so important? That Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life? Because only one who is sinless could ever die for someone else's sins. Listen to Hebrews 7. It's a wonderful passage. It speaks of Jesus as our great high priest. It says, Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, Set apart from sinners, 
exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. No one else could die for another person's sin because everyone else would have to die for their own sins first. Only Jesus, who was sinless himself, could die for our sins. So what did Jesus do? First up, he lived a perfect, sinless life. Secondly, Jesus worked miracles to demonstrate that he came from God. And Jesus worked so many miracles involving such a wide range of powers. He healed people. He cast out demons. He worked miracles over nature and food and drink. He raised people from the dead, including the biggest miracle of all, his own resurrection from the dead. We'll get to that one in a moment. And not only that, but Jesus' miracles were not limited to just a, a small, select audience of believers. No, his miracles, they were part of his public ministry. They were done openly in plain view of many witnesses, believers and non-believers alike. You'll notice Jesus' enemies, his enemies never denied that he did the miracles. They couldn't deny it. They What did they do? Instead, they either blamed Satan or they tried to get rid of the evidence. But they never denied it. All these miracles demonstrated that Jesus indeed came from God. Like the Apostle Peter said to his fellow Israelites in Acts chapter 2. He said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Jesus specifically pointed to his miracles as evidence that he came from God. John chapter 10, Jesus said to those who did not believe him, he said, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So that's the second part of our statement, what Jesus did. He worked miracles to demonstrate that he came from God. Thirdly, and of course this is this is. Such a big one, really one of the main ones. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And the next part of our statement of faith, and it has some unusual words, words we're not used to reading or saying. It speaks of his vicarious and atoning death through his shed blood. And so, you know, those key words here, vicarious and atoning, we, we need to unpack those. We need to understand what those mean. That word vicarious, it, it really, it's, it's a word simply means in place of, okay? That's all it means, in someone's, in someone's place. Jesus died in our place. That's what it's saying, vicarious. Jesus died in our place. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, 
the iniquity of us all. So we were the ones who sinned, right? We were the ones who deserved the punishment, but God took our sins and he laid our sins on Jesus. Jesus died as a substitute in our place. We see the same thing in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, died in the place of lost, rebellious sinners. The Father sent the Son, and Jesus the Son voluntarily died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. That's what that word vicarious means. And then we need to look at the word atoning. The word atone means to remove wrath or anger. That's what the word means, to remove wrath or anger. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that one of you forgot to get your sweetheart a gift for Valentine's Day earlier this year. And let's say that Uh, said sweetheart was not happy about this oversight. Let's say that person was me. No, actually it wasn't. I remembered this year, okay? There are other years I have forgotten. So, but let's say that person was you. Oh boy. And let's suppose in order to make things right, you surprised her the next day with a beautiful bouquet of flowers, a romantic card, Then you whisked her off to a fancy restaurant with a candlelight dinner awaiting your arrival. What would you be trying to do? You would be trying to atone, right? Atone for your mistake of forgetting. And if you were successful in your atonement, your sweetheart would no longer be angry with you. And that's, in a a, a lighter sense, that's what the Bible means when it speaks about Atonement, although, of course, the situation in the Bible is much more serious, much more weighty, isn't it? God is justly and rightly angry with us because of our sins. God is a holy God, and he must punish sin. But God also loves us, and so he sent his son for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for our sins. He paid the penalty and he removed God's wrath from us. He satisfied God's justice and he accomplished salvation for all who trust in him. And once again, the person of Christ is essential to the work of Christ. Right? Jesus could not have done what he did if he had not been who he was. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Only as man could Jesus die. Only as God could he die for our sins. The next part of our statement speaks of Jesus's bodily resurrection. Jesus died for our sins, but praise God, he did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day. He rose again, same body, okay? Same body that he had lived and died in. Same body, and yet it was different somehow. This was his resurrected and glorified body, a body no longer subject to death. 
And we could speak forever about the resurrection, you know, and one day in heaven we will. But let me just say three things about the resurrection for right now. First of all, the resurrection proves that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves that Jesus is God's Son. Romans 1.4, we read it earlier in the service. Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And then secondly, because Christ rose from the dead, we who believe in Christ, we also will rise from the dead. Romans 6.5 says, if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And that means we're going to receive one of those glorified, resurrected bodies like Christ. We will live with him forever in glory. And if you want to learn more about what your resurrected body is going to look like, I mean, I don't have a catalog. I mean, I wish I did. You know, we could go through, I'll pick out that one. That one looks good. Okay, I don't have a catalog. But go home today, read 1 Corinthians 15, and you go, whoa, that's what my new body's going to be like. Sign me up, God. As soon as I get that, I'll be all set. Christ rose from the dead, we also will rise. Thirdly, the fact of Christ's resurrection means that we serve a living Savior. Hebrews 7.23 speaks about uh, how the priests uh, in the Old Testament, that they, they could only serve for so long. They finally had to stop. They couldn't serve forever. Why? Because they died. Once they died, they couldn't serve any longer. But then verse 24 continues, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is alive. He lives forever. We do not follow the teachings of a dead and departed master. We serve the living Christ who rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And then the final part of our statement speaks of two things. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God the Father and his personal return in power and glory. When, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't go straight to heaven. You know, he, he appeared to his followers over a period of 40 days. And after this time, he, then he met with his disciples at a mountain in Galilee. He gave his final instructions, and then he ascended personally and visibly before their eyes. We read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 1. He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus will come back the same way he ascended. He ascended personally. And his return will also be personal. Notice the angel said, this same Jesus, a personal return of Christ. Notice that his return will also be visible. The angel said he will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. They saw him go. It was visible. He will return visibly. The book of 1 Thessalonians says that the Lord himself, the personal return of Christ, will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Jesus ascended into heaven, 
and he will come again. Now, notice what our statement of faith does not say, right? Our statement of faith doesn't say anything about when Jesus will return or about the details or the timing of different timing or order of different events. And, and that's because Christians hold to various views on Christ's return as we do our best to understand God's word in this area. And in our statement of faith, what we're, what we're trying to do in our statement of faith is to find the common ground, right? To find those things that all Christians who believe the Bible can agree on together. And so we don't have anything in there about the tribulation or the millennium or, or the timing of those things because we may not agree on all of those details. But we can all agree on the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven and he is coming again. Just as a side note, my, my personal favorite eschatology uh, comes from many years ago. I was at a Christian bookstore and was talking with a woman. We got into the end times and she said, well, I'll tell you what I believe about the end times. I said, okay, lay it on me. Never forgot it. She said, he's coming and I'm going. I said, that's great. That's my favorite eschatology. He's coming. I'm going. Folks, if you've got that part down, you are all set. You know, we said earlier that one of the most important questions you can ever answer in life is this. Who is Jesus Christ? And this morning we've seen from the Bible that Jesus is more than just a good man, teacher, or a prophet. He is the eternal Son of God who came into our world as a human being. He became fully man without ceasing to be fully God. Now, the next most important question you can ask is this. What did Jesus do? And we've seen what Jesus did. And we've seen that what he did, he could only do because of who he is. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, lived a perfect, sinless life. He worked miracles showing that he came from God. He died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. He ascended into heaven. And will come again. But you know, there's a third question that's just as important as those first two, and it follows logically from them. Once you've answered those questions, who is Jesus? And what did Jesus do? The next question is obvious What will you do with Jesus? Jesus is the eternal Son of God who voluntarily became man so that he could die on the cross for sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is coming back again. No one knows the hour or the day of his return, and many will not be ready for him. And in the meantime, in the here and now, God calls people everywhere to turn from their sin and to put their faith in Jesus, his son. Let me put it for you as simply as I can. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for you. Will you put your faith and trust in him? Let us pray. Well, dear Lord, what a privilege it is to spend time in your word together this morning, just focusing on our Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. The whole Bible is all about you. Lord, this life is all about you. 
And Lord, if we don't have you in our life, then we are missing out on the most important part of life, the very source of life, the very purpose of life, the very meaning of life. And so, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has never prayed to receive you as their Savior, let today be the day. Lord, we've seen who you are. You are the glorious, majestic Son of God, and you became a human being for us. You gave up your life for us. How can we not return our lives to you in faith and trust and obedience? And so, Lord, I just pray if there's someone here who's not received you today, they will pray to you. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I give my life to you. I'm going to trust you for the rest of my life. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.